grab your popcorn and snacks, find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Hey, welcome, welcome, welcome. It's a great Tuesday, nice and warm here in California. Let me get this uh, banner up here and start rolling on this. There we go. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. And uh, I think we're going to have a great show. Uh, fellow, fellow reporter's coming on tonight. He's going to be talking about investigating unsolved crimes. He has a uh, podcast himself. So we'll get to talk to Stephen Gregory about that. First off, I want to say again, my name is Charlotte. I'll be your host for the next hour, even with my headphones cutting out, new headphones in route. Um, you uh, you are watch. Uh, you can check our <laughs> just one of those check our website out at CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com. I'm just looking at it. Has something flash up? Uh, you can check us out at CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com. All our shows are there, archives, everything. In fact, we're going out live there. We're going out YouTube. We're going out live on. Facebook, we're going out live on Twitter and Twitch tonight. So we got a few places that we're going out live. But I want to thank you guys for coming tonight. And like I said, we've got a great show lined up. I used to be, when I was uh, working full time, I spent five years on a crime beat in Woodland, California. And it was probably one of the most interesting gigs I could have taken. You know, my dad um, was always one of those ambulance chasers. He was one of these guys. If he heard fire trucks at night, he'd He'd pile us in the car and off we'd go. Didn't matter where it was. He'd just take us. So, you know, he loved that stuff because he had been a, um, he'd been a U.S. Marshal at one point working in Sacramento and, uh, and a security guard. So he was really into that. So it was just natural for me when I moved on from being a page designer editor in Roseville, it was just natural for me to take the job out in Woodland as the crime court reporter. I loved it. You know, you just... It's just, there's never a dull moment. There's always something, I hate to say, always something bad happening out in the world, but there is. So it's it's not like you're, um, you know, you're going to be bored behind the desk. Anyway, I'm going to get Steve on, and uh, we'll get the show started. Hello, sir. Hi, good evening, good evening. Good evening. I'm so excited to have you on. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Tell me about you, because I know you. I know I, I know you've won some awards. Oh, okay. Well, mm, yeah, I've won a few. I uh, uh, it's funny because I'm not really an awards person, but my boss keeps forcing me to enter broadcast awards every year, and I, I seem to get lucky and uh, win win a few here and there. So, uh, yeah, I've been um, here in Los Angeles now, going on 18 years at KFI. Uh, we're an iHeart Media station here, and um, I've been doing the Crimes and Courts beat since well since that time and then for five years in phoenix for iHeartMedia, media used to be clear channel back then and i did five years on the crime crime beat in phoenix and then i did i was 20 years with clear channel in colorado so that's kind of my career going backwards well you got a lot more crime in court than i do <laughs> yeah but you know the thing that people don't realize like here you know we work crime in court but there's a lot of hurry up and wait with it too i mean if, if you're stuck going to court all day trying to get that story on your deadline, man, it, it, it can seem like forever. You know, you know I'm not a big fan of covering courts. Um, 
for that reason, because I'm in, you know, in radio, in print, you usually can take your time, you right. can file your story, you can sit there and file your story from your laptop, or you can go call it in or whatever the case is. Mm -hmm. uh, but with radio, I get a little impatient and I want to get on something right away. And then, and as you know, the, the process and procedure uh, in, in, in a courtroom could be very lengthy, yes. uh, con convoluted, can be confusing, can be frustrating. Um, so then that's why I only cover the more high profile cases like the Paris Hilton trial. I covered, um, OJ Simpson armed robbery trial in Vegas. I, you know, I lived in Vegas for three months to cover that for the network. And, um, so I'd go in every day and cover that. Uh, but that was just because every aspect of that trial had mm -hmm. interest because of who he is and, and uh, because of his past. So right. those higher profile things I cover quite a bit, but, um, in federal court, I can't stand covering federal court because that's really boring sometimes. <laughs> yeah, federal court sucks. I'll tell you. Yeah, <laughs> really really does. Um, well, I just got really lucky because the local stations here, there's, I mean, we we compete with like the TV stations and stuff, but it's not it's not like some place like New York or San Francisco where where they're out for themselves, you know. So I would go in because because I I knew the local newscasters. So I would say, look, I got to go back to the office. I'm, I got to get the paper out. I'm on deadline. Let me know if the jury comes back or what they do. And so someone someone from from you know from the new TV stations would call me and go, hey, you know, there's stuff going on. Well, one of the things that uh, I I am blessed with here in Los Angeles is the press corps here for by and large uh, yeah. is, is a bunch of people who are pretty settled here. They're veterans um, because, you know, a lot of people aspire to get to this market. So they're sure. not really out to prove anything. And, and, and I only say that because um, there, there is friendly competition here and we all understand our, mm -hmm. our competition. It's funny, but we feel like as a press corps, as a broadcast press corps, we're competing with Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Right. That's who right. we're competing against. But as yeah. far as each other, not so much. And that said, I can always count on if I'm running late because we don't have uh, a big reporting team here like a television station does. And so I have to do the job of three or four people. Um, and sometimes I find myself at a different location on the other side of town. I got to get over to this trial or this hearing. And when I get there, I'll see a friendly face and say, oh, hey, what happened? And they'll just open up their book and say, well, this happened, this happened, this happened. And I trust them. And then I'll share my audio with my colleagues from my competition. Shh, don't tell my boss. But um, I will share it, it sometimes that, you know, just say, hey, here's an interview I got with the attorney or with a plaintiff or whatever. But um, I'm very blessed in this market that we all work together. We help each other because, um, it, you know, there's no benefit to not doing it because we're all going to get the story. And it really doesn't right. matter if you're first. It, well, it matters right. that, that you're accurate. Well, that makes sense. That's neat to hear about something like Los Angeles because I'm not going to say where in my area, you know, let's just say as you go further west, it gets real cutthroat. Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, because that's where the money, that's where, all, that's where everybody's money. I mean, the newspaper at the level where I'm at, you don't make as much money as you do as the, the further out west you go. Right. And so it was nice to have that, you know, with the, like, like these, the, the old timers, I'm talking, that's, you know, that's a long time ago, 20, almost 20 years ago, Creighton Sanders and people like that, that were at channel three and did these TV stations that were real helpful. You know, so it was nice. And like you, if something came up and they had notes on something, they'd say, Hey, here, here's your mm -hmm. interview you got. And, you know, you can use some of the stuff. So well, my, my view of that is always because I may need it someday. I may need that help in return. And there's no reason to isolate yourself. I don't think anyone's that good that they yeah. can afford to isolate themselves from everybody else. And I'm not real big, a real big fan of people who isolate themselves because they're, 
They feel like somehow they're above the rest of us, whether their station's bigger, they have more ratings, uh, whatever the case is. Um, I, you know, again, blessed to be with a station that's very large and has a very large footprint. But I mean, I will help a, a student reporter that comes in and I can tell they're fumbling a little bit and they need a little help and I'll get them in where they need to go and get them a seat closer to the action. Say, you know, here is what you need to do. Um, and then as new reporters start coming into this business, you know, a lot of them, here's the sad part about our business. And I don't want to editorialize too much, but the sad part about our business is we're, you know, we're hiring a lot of younger people for the sake of hiring younger people. You don't have to have a degree in journalism to be a journalist. Um, uh, you'd be surprised how many journalists in Los Angeles or actually people that are reporters or on the air do not have degrees in journalism. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, but they're good performers and they, they, sure. they appeal to the audience. Sure. 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 So how did you get on, you know, going from your crime beat, how did you start looking more into these unsolved cases? Well, and I, I believe the reason we're connecting is because you heard me with George Nori, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, so, and, and you know, and I've known George for a lot of years and he's always known that I was a breaking news reporter and I'm a correspondent for iHeartMedia. So I travel the country to cover bigger stories. And um, so when I, I cover these local, uh, these local um, cases, uh, one of them that caught my attention was a, um, we have a particular issue here with our, our district attorney, our, our LA County district attorney. There's a lot of controversy surrounding him because of some directives he put into place moments after he was sworn into office. And some of those directives have not gone over real well with the the general public. And some of those have to do with elevating um, a juvenile crime to an adult court. And uh, one of them was a case where a detective reached out to me and said, Hey, you need to know about this because it's heinous. It's really sad. And um, odds are those that we caught them, the ones that are responsible for it, but odds are nothing's going to happen to them because of these new directives. So that's what started me digging into this story. So some background on the case. Back in the late 90s, um, there was this 14-year-old girl who was walking home, and um, she stopped to call her mother to tell her she was running late. She stopped at a liquor store in the city of El Monte, which is just south of Los Angeles, kind of a suburb. And she stopped to talk on this payphone. And while she was on the payphone, this these two cars pull up with a bunch of gangbangers in them, and they opened fire on what was a group of gang members in the parking lot. She gets shot by a stray bullet and it gets, she gets shot in the head while she's on the phone with her sister and dies on scene. So that was back in the late nineties. So the case, so that was one part of the story. Mm -hmm. So that gang in the car takes off the two cars. They take off to the city of Rialto, which is East of Los Angeles, about 45 minutes East of Los Angeles. So they go out there to commit um, a robbery of a gun store. Well, the Rialto Police Department had intel that there was this robbery going to happen. So they were there. They intervened, intercepted the would-be robbery. And in the process, there was an officer-involved shooting. A gangbanger got shot and killed. And so that ended up becoming the case. Well, the case back in El Monte, there were no clues. There were no witnesses coming forward. So that went unsolved. The, the, the death of that young girl and consequently a gang banger in the parking lot also got killed. So those two, those two murders ended up becoming unsolved for many, many years. Fast forward to latter part of 2019 
when detectives at the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department get a call, it says, it's from a woman. My boyfriend has information about a murder from back in 1997. If we tell you the information, can you help out my boyfriend? He's in jail right now. Well, the detectives were like, well, you're going to have to give me more than that. So they arranged some sort of a phone call. The detective speaks with the, the boyfriend that's in jail. And there's enough information there that prompts two detectives to get on a plane. This guy was out of state in a jail, flies out of state to meet him in jail. And they're asking him a series of questions. They ask the guy, okay, well, if you know this much about it, where's the murder weapon? And the guy says, you've had the murder weapon. And the detective says, what do you mean we've had the murder weapon? He says, well, not you, but the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department has had the murder weapon the whole time. Whoa. Why? Well, come to find out in California, any weapon used in an officer-involved shooting is kept indefinitely in an archive, in an evidence archive. So that weapon was in the evidence locker of the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department. For those that don't know, San Bernardino's way east of Los Angeles. And... So the detectives get back. They call the department out there. The LA County Sheriff's Department calls San Bernardino and says, hey, we've got this case. You mind if we come out, take a look? They come out, they grab the weapon, take it over to forensics. Ballistics test proves and comes back positive that it was the same weapon used with the uh, shooting of both the young girl, the 14-year-old girl, and the gangbanger. So wow. now they've got their murder weapon. Now they start working backwards, and they find three of the four people that were involved in the shooting that night, and they were able to arrest them. So now fast forward again, these guys are now in their 40s. But when they committed the crimes, they were 15 and 16 years old. Mm -hmm. They were minors. Mm -hmm. But under this new rule in Los Angeles County, the new DA would not try them in adult court. So these 40-year-old men are sitting in juvenile court in Pasadena, which is east of LA, and they were sentenced to two years in jail. For a murder, double murder. So that's what got me started. So when I was debriefing that case on one of our midday talk shows, they gave me an entire hour to debrief that case. So was I, as I was talking about it, my phone blew up with other detectives. Hey, can you talk about my case? Hey, can you highlight my case? The hosts of the show got flooded with emails. Wow, this is, this is gripping. This is compelling. We love this. Uh, you should make this a regular thing. And they're giving me this feedback during the commercial break. So I just said, well, that's really nice. And so at the time we needed a, we needed a new Saturday night show because our, our host had, the other host had left. So we needed a new Saturday show from eight to 10. And my program director stopped me in the, in the hallway and said, Hey, that was a great segment you did with Gary and Shannon. And I said, well, thanks. Appreciate it. And as I walked away, I turned around and said, Hey, maybe I ought to do cold cases every Saturday night. <laughs> Kept walking. She stopped. She goes, you know what? That's not a bad idea. And I said, no, nah, I don't have the time. I really don't. Because I, in addition to doing this, you know, I'm also, I also produced a podcast for iHeart radio for our, our network. And so I'm doing documentaries for them and, and I just don't have the time. Right. And then she says, well, let's talk about it. I said, yeah, yeah, whatever. A couple of weeks goes by. Let's talk about it. No, no, no. So anyway, about a month later, I'm sitting in her office and we're actually taking it seriously. And then we go over it and I said, well, I can't do it unless, you know, we have to do it under certain conditions. And I laid out all the conditions and she said yes to every one of them. So next thing I know, a month later, I'm doing a Saturday night show on unsolved crimes for two hours with a subsequent podcast. So now um, we just taped a, an in-person 
we had a studio audience on Saturday at Morton Steakhouse in one of the Morton's Steakhouses here in LA. And we have a big private room in the back. And I was able to fill it with detectives, the sheriff of LA County, and some listeners of the radio show. And uh, now we're going to start taping some shows like that every every month. Um, the show has been on now since November 6th. And uh, in our first 30 days of being on the air, we had 59,000 downloads on the platform. Wow. So it we've We've struck gold, I guess, as they say, yeah. unexpectedly. No, uh, our, our ratings are are huge right now. We're, we're I, I'm still flabbergasted at how popular it's become, but um, I'm very uh, very blessed to be uh, well connected with local law enforcement, and that's that's the only reason we're able to pull this off. Because without these contacts, I wouldn't have anybody to talk to. I was going to ask you. I mean, how how do you do the research for this stuff? I mean, are, are you having to go through court records? I mean, that's a pain in the. No, you know, and it's funny, it's, and it's, I'm glad you asked that because a lot of the podcasts that you hear right now that are posted from these, um, and, and they're well done. I mean, mm -hmm. but these are people that have never covered these cases. These are people that don't even know these detectives. These are, uh, you know, I kid you not. There was one podcast I was listening to just to kind of get an idea and a feel for for how they do it. And we counted at the end, we, we let it roll. And at the, at the very, it was nine episodes and the ninth episode, they did the credit roll 30 people. There were 30 people on that credit roll that worked on that one podcast. And it was mostly just interviews. There was no sound design. There was no, you know, there was music in there, but there was no Nat sound. There was no compelling audio or anything like that. It was just interview stuff. And it was like you said, it was well done and well put together and well pieced together. But there were 30 people involved in that one podcast. I have one producer and he's also working two other shows in the building. So he spread out pretty thin as, as we all are. But um, so when I look back at it and think about all the resources that these other podcasts have, they've got researchers that are going down to courthouses because they don't have the contacts. Right. They, they got to get on the phone. And plus they're, they're, they're highlighting cases that are in other parts of the country. Mm -hmm. I'm focused on LA County. So I, and so I know most every one of the players that I need to know in LA County, mine is just a simple phone call. And then I know the people I'm dealing with. I don't do all the research. I ask the detectives to simply put a narrative together of the case. In fact, I just did an interview yesterday. I'll show this to you right now. So I did an interview with uh, another LA County Sheriff's detective about this about this case right here. So I get these bulletins and this bulletin goes back to um, 2015 and it's a missing person that was killed presumably by a gangbanger. Well, the, the kind of the interesting part, and you're getting an exclusive here, by the way, because I, this isn't, this is, we're producing this for next season. So the, the, the important part here is that this guy here, this um, Ray Collins is a childhood friend of Kendrick Lamar, the famous rap artist. And he was, and they suspect this guy was killed by uh, uh, gangbangers who uh, wanted to get in, break into the, the rap business. And he was a rap video producer. So I get a narrative typed like this, that I had that. So I'll get a narrative that looks like that. So I have the detectives type me a narrative. I have them do the work for me. I mean, that's cool. the way to do it because I they put it in their words. Right, And then I, I take this and then I, I make my notes and I do everything right off of that. But I, I literally have them type the narrative. Then I read through it real quick. Cause I, again, I'm doing this, I'm doing my own investigations for the station. 
Um, and then I've got my documentaries and stuff I have to do. So I'm the traffic cop. So I have just enough of a information to ask some salient questions. And then once it gets, once we get rolling, I tell the detectives, I said, you're the star of the show. I'm just the traffic cop. I'm just here to get you from point A to point B, but you're, you're the content. I'm just the traffic cop. So that's my approach. And that's one of the only reasons why I'm able to do them and keep up with my daily duties. Yeah, because court fi- having to go through the court files is, I mean, it's tedious. The stacks, oh, yeah. the stacks, the stacks, the stacks of stuff. No, I fall asleep halfway through most of the time. I do too. I can't do I it. Honestly, now that I'm not on the beat, I can honestly say that because I used to have to do that occasionally. And I, I was just like, do I have to go to court, you know, to, to look at this stuff? <laughs> right. 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 So tell me about a case that's stick- that, 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 you know, we, we talked about the, the, the one earlier, you know, with the gang shooting. What other case sticks out in your head that I've done on my show? Yes, sir. There's one Charlotte that, that, that gets me from Fontana police, uh, Fontana again, East of Los Angeles. And, um, um, this is a story of a, a man who owned an apartment complex in the city of Fontana. And one morning he gets up early and they were in the process of selling. He and his wife were selling this apartment complex and they uh, he gets up and he the property manager calls him and says you know um i've got the rent money for the month i've got the tenants rent money so he goes over and picks her up then goes and picks up a, a lawnmower to go manicure the lawn in the front of the apartment complex and we're talking gosh we're talking 20 something years ago and he goes and you know takes care of business presumably well he's never seen again no one knows where he's at Four days later, his car is found in the city of Duarte, California, which is near Fontana. Ten days later, his body is found buried in La Paz County, Arizona. No clue how and why it got there. Um, the detective reached out to me and we we highlighted the case. And it fascinates me because to this day, everybody involved in that case is still alive. And they're playing very coy. And they've all been in touch with each other to still talk about it. But when they, when the detective laid out who all the players are, it reads like, um, it reads like a crime novel about all these different players and the, the property manager, then the property manager's husband, then ex-husband, but then they're still dating. And then you've got the, you've got the gardener that was a, an ex-felon that's involved. And then you've got the, uh, then you've got the friends of the ex-husband who, um, you know, use the credit cards from the dead apartment owner. And, but that was back in the eighties when there were no, um, there was no surveillance video. There wasn't any of that stuff back then. So this detective and she's, I believe the fourth set of eyes on this case over the years. And so she's having to take the new technology of today and go back. And she just told me the other night that they finally got permission to go dig up the remains of the, cause they were able to find the man's remains in La Paz County, Arizona, bring them back to Fontana. And she's going to exhume the body and take DNA samples. Cause they seem that they seem to think they know how they can get some DNA. There was some DNA on some evidence from back in the eighties. And, um, uh, that's, it's similar to the case I was telling you about before with the guy in jail where, where, you know, almost 30 years later, that gun's been sitting in evidence the whole time. And it was this one guy just desperate enough to get some help in his jail cell to call. And that's what she's hoping here is that 
new technology is going to help them solve an old case. Um, that that sticks out at me because it was so just so bizarre and so and it just and every time she every time she's telling me the story, she's adding another player to it. And I say, at one point we counted nine people involved in this case, and they still don't have enough to put it together to serve a, a, an arrest warrant. Another one was um, a woman named Minerva Gonzalez, a mother of two in the city of Fontana, also, uh, who one morning walked her two young kids to school. And uh, by that afternoon, she was found beaten to death in the front uh, entranceway to her, her house. Um, and they, they had evidence that someone had broken into her house at least three times before. And then she had plywood on the back window area. There was plywood, but it had been pried open. Oddly enough, in the, in the previous weeks to that murder, there had been a, a weird number, high number of panty bandits in that town that were breaking into homes and stealing women's underwear. And they seemed to think that there was some sort of a weird connection between her murder and one of these underwear bandits. Um, that was a bizarre story because she was just this really uh, beautiful young woman who took her two kids to school one morning and she would walk the kids to school. Then a neighbor would walk the kids along with her kids home from school and they tried to knock or they knocked on the door. No one answered the door. And then when husband came home from work that night, he pushed the door because the door was not opening. And it looks like from from the evidence standpoint, because they showed me the pictures and the, and the graphics, she tried to get out of the front door and collapsed and bled out right there at the front entrance to the inside the front entrance. And um, the husband ended up discovering the body of this young woman. Uh, it's still an unsolved case to this day. Well, you know, I, when I hear you talking about this, I think I, I think of the slogan on, on unsolved mysteries, and that there ha, there is somebody out there that knows. Oh yeah, yeah, and you know, you know what investigators really are they count on now, because a lot of these unsolved crimes were usually committed by people when they were younger, mm -hmm. and you know, young men usually most of the time it's always young men in their twenties or not younger, and. What they hope now is like the case I was telling you before with the, the crazy DA directive, um, you know, their defense attorney portrayed these people in their forties as family men, church going men. Uh, they've turned their lives around. They got out of the gang activity. So they portray them now as these model citizens, but back then they were, they were killers. Mm -hmm. And so what happens, uh, these investigators, what they try to play on is a person's guilt. They try to play on the fact that maybe now they're old enough, they have kids, um, they start to feel a little guilty about the crimes of their past, and maybe they make an anonymous phone call. Mm -hmm. um, and sadly, reward money is a huge motivator. And so I know in L.A. County, they're constantly asking for the minimum, which is, uh, well, L.A. County, the minimum is $5,000. For the city of Los Angeles, it's $25,000. But, uh, you know, at one point... Um, there was a recent case here, really bad, a really high profile case when, I mean, they got it up to a hundred and something thousand dollars <laughs> and sure enough, they were, they got a break in the case because someone wanted that money. And that's the sad part about society. Well, look at the serial rapist here, which is what the I five killer at, at your end. Right. Yeah. I mean, that guy, he did all that stuff in, in his younger life and he was living out here with yeah. his family and everything. Yeah. And you know, at some point, 
I, I just don't know. You know, you, I, a lot of these shows try to dedicate themselves to get into the psyche of these people and try to mm-hmm. figure out who they are and what motivated them. And I remember a, a, a serial killer that I covered. His name was John Gardner. Um, he killed two young girls one year apart from each other, Amber Dubois and Chelsea King, very, very high profile in Southern California. And um, it was uh, a relative of John Gardner that reached out to me and showed me so much evidence about his relative, uh, Mm -hmm. including the search warrant. Uh, There was a gag order on the case, but I was able to obtain all this stuff, including videotaped depositions from past victims of his attacks that survived rape, rape victims, some as young as 14. And I watched these depositions and Mm -hmm. I reached out to a friend of mine. Um, his name is John Douglas. He's a famous uh, criminal profiler. He actually helped to create the FBI, um, criminal profile unit. In fact, uh, he's the subject of, he wrote the book. Um, well, uh, uh, what's the, uh, silence of the lambs, uh, is, uh, there, his, one of his characters is played by, um, Scott Glenn okay. is, is he's portrayed by Scott Glenn. And, um, so he's, he, he's big on the, uh, big on the uh, criminal profile. So I sent him a FedEx of all this material I got about this guy from his relative. And I said, Hey, John, can you set me up a profile on this guy? Oh my God, you should have seen the stuff he sent back to me. It was fascinating. And then I did the phone interview with him about it as a recap. And he was spot on, spot on about this guy, about everything. And about like how he would, um, when he looked at the search warrant and you looked at some of the items on the search warrant and he says, you know what he's doing is he's collecting trinkets. He's collecting personal belongings from each of the girls he's attacked or killed. And then he, because he had a girlfriend at the time, this killer did, and the girlfriend had no clue. But the girlfriend was wearing the necklace of one of the victims, earrings from another victim, wrote, hmm. you know, all kinds of weird stuff like that. And he says, that's how he relives the crime and gets off inside over and over and over. He, he keeps seeing these personal items um, on his girlfriend from the victims he's attacked or killed. It was some fascinating stuff. But um, so I ended up doing that story. And uh, he was forced, they were forced to, to announce his public confession early on. And um, I was threatened. <laughs> I was threatened with contempt of court because he had a gag order. And I said, well, my name's not on the gag order. So there's not much you can do to me. So I'm depressed. This is news. <laughs> um, you know, there's a lot of that with these killers, though. You know, the ones that collect stuff like that. Yeah, it's a weird it's a, a really weird thing, but it, it's part of the psyche and, uh, you know, listening to John. And then I have a psychologist here I use for analysis and they talk about how they have to keep reliving that and reliving that and reliving that. And that's what somehow, you know, I use the term getting gets them off. It, it really it, it just excites them. It just is this state of constant uh, euphoria of knowing that 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 woman is wearing the dead girl's jewelry and uh or the dead girl's shirt or a hat or some weird stuff like that. And um, it's such a weird, and you know, it's just hard for me to wrap my, I think it's hard for any normal person to wrap mm-hmm. their head around. Absolutely. You know, and with you getting these stories out, I can see why the police are excited about it because I mean, it brings them back out and maybe, who knows, like, like there may be somebody out there who's, who's ready to talk right now. I can see with some of the gang stuff because I know the police run into that a lot. People right. are afraid to say anything. You know, right, right, right after the thing occurs, because they're afraid the gangs will come back on them. 
But right, later exactly. on down the line, you know. Yeah, and when they're adults, and it's funny you say that because I asked the detective yesterday, the one I was interviewing on that case, I said, you know, in all your experience and all your years, um, how long do these people stay in gangs? When they're in their teens and 20s, are they in when they're in their 30s, 40s, and 50s? And he goes, very few to none stay in the gangs that long. Um, he says they all usually get out at some point. And then he said they're either dead, they're in prison, or they got lucky enough to get out and get a job, get a, a degree or something. Somebody helped them along the way. But he said very few of them um, are, still in, are still in the business, if you will, or in the gang business. Uh, and that's why he says, as I mentioned before, that he really hopes and counts on the fact that maybe they're adults now and they realize the error of their ways. And he said he doesn't care if it's an anonymous phone call or not. He just wants to solve the crime. He wants to give these families closure. You know, I know stories about guys that are in prison now for shooting, you know, for shooting and killing people, you know, when, when they were in their teens. And, you know, I don't know, is there enough, like, for somebody like that, if there's enough remorse for them to get parole or whatever, because they're still in prison. You see what I'm saying? I mean, maybe they are, you know, they've grown up enough to be remorseful. Well, and this, like I mentioned before, like the guy uh, that was out of state, some now are smart enough to realize that maybe they take that crime with them because they know that that's their ace in the hole someday. Mm -hmm. Maybe they'll use it and they'll have their attorney, if they have one, to say, listen, Call the sheriff's department, call the police department, tell them I have information about this murder, that murder. Tell them I have great intel on this and that and the other. And sometimes they can parlay that into a, a lighter sentence. They can parlay it into a commutation. Who knows? But um, the detectives have told me that there are some that, that carry those crimes with them, knowing that that could someday be their ace in the hole. Sure, sure, sure. Now, like you said with this last one, uh, you know, them kind of threatening you because there was a gag order on the case do you run into stuff like you talked about paris hilton do you ever get like uh, um phone calls and stuff uh, you know if you bring if, if you're covering something like like with paris hilton do i get phone calls from whom uh, her, her attorneys or anything like that oh on occasion i'll get i'll get a call from an attorney one day I, I, i'm trying to remember who it was uh well you know let me go back to the oj case Okay. So the, the OJ case in Vegas, and that was the armed robbery where OJ Simpson had gone into, with, into a hotel room with some other guys and he, they had uh, confronted a sports memorabilia trader. And uh, there was a lot of stuff in there that was OJ Simpson's at one time. And he demanded all his stuff back and he did it in the group of guys. And one of the guys had a gun. So in, in Nevada, it became a kidnapping charge on top of an armed robbery charge. And they were all considered they all got the same charges against them. And then a couple of guys rolled over and it ended up boiling down to two defendants. And it was um, uh, CJ Williams and OJ Simpson. And while we were covering that case, I remember the attorney Yale Galanter coming out and he's from Florida because he was OJ's attorney in Florida, but Yale had to partner with um, Gabe Grasso, who was an attorney in Nevada, who was licensed in Nevada. So he had to have a, a Nevada licensed attorney in order to practice. So they partnered up. Well, they went right away. They went around and started talking to media one-on-one -on -one saying, Hey, listen, um, we know, we know that the, that the murder trial is going to be a big part of this because people are going to feel like they need to get justice for Nicole Brown, uh, uh -huh. Simpson's ex-wife. Um, he was acquitted of her murder, of course, but, uh, people feel like that there's still some payback here. So the attorneys came around and, 
pulled us off to the side one by one and said, Hey, um, if you've got an issue with this and he says, uh, do us a favor. If you plan to run a story about that, can you run it by us first? No, I'm not going to run it by you. But I said, if I need clarification or I need some help on it, or I need a, uh, you know, a fact verified or something, sure. I'll reach out to you, but I'm not running anything by you. And then he kind of realized, he's like, well, I don't really mean it that way. I said, so well, what, how did you mean it? And he goes, well, what we all were asking for is that, you know, if don't print it all one-sided, you know, try to get to us for a comment if you can. I said, well, the fact that you felt like you had to remind us that I said, it's kind of a, you must uh, deal with a whole different level of reporter from Florida. And he just kind of gave me this weird look. I said, because any journalist worth their weight in gold is always going to try to get comment or try to tell the other side. So um, you don't have to worry about me on that one. Um, and that was along with my colleagues from CNN and Fox. And uh, at the time, uh, the Las Vegas Journal and the Associated Press. So uh, we were all working the story together. And it's just, we all kind of looked at each other and went, hey, did you get the, did you get the chat from it? He goes, yeah, I did too. And he's like, hey, that guy's got some balls, doesn't he? He's like, yeah, he does. So yeah, then every once in a while, like the Paris Hilton thing, I was sitting next to Paris Hilton's mom during that trial. And um, she kept looking over at me. I was literally sitting next to her taking notes and she would look at my notes and she'd say, what does that say? Because I write really poorly, only for me to read. And I go, I look at her and say, oh, that's what, that's what your daughter just said. You know, she says, oh. Then she'd look at it. She goes, what, what does that say? What is, what are you writing there? And I said, I'm making note of, you know, what the room looks like. You know, it's, it's dark. It's a dark Brown room. It's cold in here. Uh, Paris is wearing a green dress or whatever the case is. I said, I'm making notes about the color and the setup of the room so I can, you know, portray the story. She goes, why is that important? I said, well, it's important. Cause I said, I'm in radio. I have to paint a word picture. That's my job. Okay. Okay. And then, you know, then 10, 15 minutes and then, you know, she'd get beat up by the prosecution and she looked at me, she goes, can you believe he said that to my daughter? <laughs> I said, like, that's the prosecutor's job, you know, but so I'd get this, this real time commentary by Paris Hilton's mom who was sitting next to me in the trial. So, um, yeah, every once in a while I interact with those, those folks and, but, um, I'm kind of impervious to any of that. I just kind of nod my head and say, oh yeah, yeah sure. Whatever. That's funny. <laughs> when you talk about your writing, because I always tell, I used to tell people, cause I, when I was doing interviews, I, I would use a uh, digital voice recorder, not in court, of course, but, you know, sure. if I was doing a one-on-one, because I used to tell people, I, I write it, my stuff looks like it's a doctor's prescription mm-hmm. when I write mm-hmm. it. Well, so yeah. I have to have the backup. I have no choice. This is so fascinating to talk to you about this stuff. Oh, yeah. See, that's how my there's stuff my, is. There's my reporter notebook. That looks like there's mine. my notes. <laughs> how about that? Look at that. Can you read that? Can you make that out? No, it looks like mine. I, I just put up somebody's phone number. I hope that wasn't important. That's uh, what I used to frustrate my editors because they, they'd be like, well, don't be using the recorder. And so I'd hand them my notebook and go, well, try and read this. Yeah, exactly. It's all no, there, but you know. And then I've got, you know, over the years, I have so stacks and stacks and stacks and stacks of these books. I have so many of these books here. These I are, uh, but I still write stuff. I cannot take notes on a laptop. I, I just, I don't type that fast. I don't either. I type, I type, I type fine enough for me, but I have to take notes because I also have to, I have to draw too and draw pictures and arrows. And so that's the only way I can get through it. I do that stuff too. In fact, when I left the Democrat, I took, you know, um, you know, when, when, when I moved on to other things, I actually had files that I took too, just in case I wanted to revisit something. 
you know, finding sure. another job out in Yellow County to to get back in the files. Um, so you were you're a print reporter then up north. Yeah. Um, so um what was what's that like on a like uh, when you say you were doing the cops and courts beat and i grew up in a small town in southern colorado so but i wasn't doing crimes and courts back then it was mostly city council and then school boards and that, that ring boring stuff but so what's that like up there where you know the towns are small and you and everyone knows everyone how was that to cover crime up there when you know pretty much all the players it was interesting sometimes it was harder too in fact, when I was uh, working in Placerville, and I, to give you an idea, up in El Dorado County, um, it was a lot easier up in that area than it was in Woodland because there were, there, there were more of what I want to call the good old boys. Mm. And so you'd run into like people that, that, well, like I said, they would stick together and you're trying to get information out of them. So it, 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 you might as well, you know, it, it was like pulling teeth on people. Yeah. But I mean, you knew everybody, and like the DA's office, you knew everybody at the DA's office, you knew everybody at the public defender's office. And then but the gal that was working at the other paper, our, our rival paper, actually, her husband was a public defender, so that didn't help it. Oh boy. Yeah. So she had all the insider information coming from there. But in, in, in the end, you know, as the, the more I worked, he became really fair with the information, finally. Mm. You know, it just took him a while to warm up to me. But you can't believe how much, you know, I didn't think there was going to be that much crime there <laughs> or that much stuff happening. I mean, I five runs right, right smack through it. And so the accidents, I mean, there must've been three, four fatal accidents like yeah. a month that I was out covering. Um, yeah. Did you have, did you have issues with the fact that like your, your coverage was closely scrutinized because it is a small town. And so you have half the community loving what you write and half the community hating what you write. Absolutely. Absolutely. It you, was, couldn't go, you couldn't go into the cafe or the diner without someone giving you the cup of coffee or something. And they'd be there. In fact, when I was covering a gang shooting, a lot of the gang uh, girlfriends worked in like the Carl's juniors and stuff. Sure. And I would go in there to get food. <laughs> and I caught one gal spitting in my burger, you know? Yeah. And stuff oh, like know. that. Or they were leaving that the, the, they would um, write on the sidewalk out in front of the paper. Oh, you know, and they'd say, no. you, know, you guys don't tell the truth and all this stuff was going on. I mean, there's a lot of gang. I don't want to get in trouble because I'm, you know, because of where I'm at. But the, there was a lot of activity back then. More than more than you could think there was. And well, yeah, sure. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe. I mean, you, you talk about Southern California, you know, and the frequency of the stuff that goes on out there. But I couldn't believe, I mean, the stuff, that, the, the crime that, that, that was going on. You know, the murders, like the like the wives killing their husbands and all this other stuff going on. I mean, I think the first year I was there, I must have covered six murder trials. Wow. Yeah. Well, and then how long ago was that? Uh, right now, I think about maybe 15, 16 years ago. Wow, that's a lot. That's pretty high back then. Yeah. Yeah, and I used to be able my because <laughs> I used to, uh, we used to, my family and I had a house up north, and we would go up there, and I'd be in the car with my mom and dad sometimes, and I'd be like, Oh yeah, and that guy died over there, and that guy died over there, and that guy died over there. As we went up the freeway. Well, I do remember uh, when I was working Phoenix, I had taken down a very high-ranking member of the Phoenix Police Department in one of my investigations, and in doing so, I also pissed off uh, a member or pissed off members of a gang in Phoenix because apparently 
members of these gangs were getting get out of jail free cards from this high ranking official in the police department. And I remember getting a threat one time. Someone called the newsroom and threatened me by name. Oh, yeah. And then I called the sheriff's department or I called the police department. I said, hey, just let you know, I just, you know, we got a threat. I had to report it to our risk uh, management people. And then by that afternoon, I had a sheriff's security detail on me for two weeks. And so that sheriff's security detail followed me everywhere for two weeks. And that was a little, little unusual, a little daunting, but, um, it was a, um, it's a reality of, of the job and, um, never really worried too much about it, I guess. I mean, they could have just followed me home and for all I know they did, but, uh, having a, a you know, I had a, a security detail, like I said, and every once in a while you touch a raw nerve and you just kind of have to, you know, you have to watch your back. So I remember somebody called and, uh, wanted to do an interview and they invited me over to their house <laughs> and i'm going uh, oh no Ooh. pass because i did i interviewed this uh, pastor who had been a gang member and he was just telling you know he, he wanted to get out that yeah you know there's a place for gang members to go that want to get out and all this so we go to this house i mean the photographer and i and we're standing in front of this house talking to this kid and it turns out this kid has just gone out of jail for a murder um, you know that because he was going to trial yeah. As we're standing there talking to this kid, they were driving by slowly. Well, yeah. And coming out of the houses. And we're looking around and we're just like, this is not cool. This is it. the only thing that's saving us right now is this pastor. You know, we're out here talking to these guys. Turns out that guy ended up getting uh, beat up because he talked to us. You know, the guy, the, the guy we ended up interviewing. Yeah. But it's really unnerving. You know, you're standing out there and you suddenly realize they're watching. Yeah, you know, there's a there's a scary part of reality to all of this, and uh, I, I mean, I'm looking back as we talk about this now. I'm looking back to, at other close calls I've had, and you know, I was covering the Ferguson, Missouri riots after uh, Michael Brown was killed by a, a white police officer, and um, I was attacked then. In fact, I was live on the air mm-hmm. on our evening show when I was attacked, and um, they took my cell phone and. They, we lost connection with my broadcast unit because I was in a rental car and we have a broadcast unit gadget that we could connect by Wi-Fi or satellite. I was connected by, uh, excuse me, by cell phone and we got disconnected, lost my cell phone. They took it and then they threw me up against the car and then I, and then gunfire erupted. You hear live gunfire on the air. And so I had to hide under the rental car. And then when it kind of, when the dust settled for a second, I was able to get in the rental car and drive through a neighborhood and the whole place was just filled with smoke because they were lighting buildings on fire. So I parked in this person's driveway and just hid down, got into my gear bag, found my backup cell phone, but I had to wait for it to charge because it was dead. So I had to sit there and plug it into the car while I'm ducking down and wait for one bar. So I could at least call my newsroom and say, I'm okay. Well, that's what I was going through. The room, the newsroom back here in LA, all they heard was Steve on the air talking and then they hear me in a scuffle they hear gunfire and then i go my connection goes dead that's all they heard wow so they thought i got shot so people are freaking out because they're calling my cell phone and right. i don't have my cell phone and right. so i've had little weird close calls like that what happened i was up uh we were on our arnold Schwarz, arnold at the time you know when he was governor was spoke at one of the hospitals up in up near placerville we were on our way back to the newsroom and we get a call of a uh, shooter, a live shooter. So we go out there. We're the first, we're the first group on scene. 
Nobody's stopping us because the police are preoccupied at this point. Fire department's out there. We go walking in. SWAT team, you know it's scary when, when you go walking in somewhere and the SWAT team is going the opposite direction with their guns. Right. And I'm turning around. I'm like, okay, we got to stop here. My photographer, being as brave as he was, there was an ambulance near the house. He, he walked up over there. I kind of <laughs> held back behind this police car. And as I'm standing there, all of a sudden you hear it. Boom, 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 boom. Because this guy had dug um, bunkers in this field. So he was holed up in the back of this field. But he starts firing on everybody. I'm under the car at this point. I'm ca- But you know what? I'm counting the shots. Because I know the newsroom is going to want to know how many shots. Whether So I'm counting the shots. But I'm thinking, this was really stupid. You know, we should have known when we saw the SWAT team going the opposite way. That should have been the indication that we shouldn't have gone all the way in. And that this went on for like 15, 20 minutes. You know, the shots were going back and forth. Then it, then the newsroom finally says, okay, you guys need to get out of there. The cops chased us out. So we go and park like, you know, probably maybe a half a block away. Because we're in the middle of the fields. You know, this is old farming country. And we're sitting there and we're watching the cops and they're looking for this guy. And we're sitting there like sitting ducks. And all we could think about is he's out here somewhere. So all of a sudden, this person appears out of this bush. Mm. And we both just went, ah. <laughs> and it was a police officer. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> that could have gone a different way. That's the stuff that happens. But, you know, you're on the phone with the newsroom, like you say, and, you know, the shots start going off and you're thinking, okay, I got to keep at least some wits about me, even though they're shooting at us. And then you don't know what direction they're coming from. No. You know, so you're on the ground and the fire trucks were probably 30, 40 feet behind me. And I thought, well, I can't go back there. I might as well just dive in behind the police car. Uh, Well, let's see. I'm trying to remember, too. I've been shot at twice at the border because I cover immigration. Uh, I was with a border patrol agent. We were attacked. We were rocked. Uh, you know, somebody, somebody from the other side threw some rocks over a fence and one of them hit a border agent and sliced mm-hmm. his hand open. It was a shale rock and I had to get him to safety. Uh, cause he, they, they drive alone and it was just, he and I, um, one other time we were out in the middle of, um, the desert in, uh, eastern california i think it was out in calexico area when um i was talking to a member of the minuteman project uh which was a volunteer an all-volunteer border watch group and all of a sudden i started hearing this weird and then someone screamed gunfire gunfire and someone was shooting from the other side of the border so we had to dive down in the dirt and wait till that all went away and it was it was dusk so thankfully it was getting dark and we could crawl away and get out of there so uh yeah um my family isn't too happy with what I do sometimes. So sometimes it's like they say, can't you just stay in the studio and do those little documentary things you do? It's like, yeah, it can that. get exciting. I mean, I used to have to uh, do fires too. And I mean, if you don't think fires are hot guys, you get to a field fire somewhere and park your car and you can feel the heat cut coming through the doors of the car, you know, from the fire. Yeah. I did one out. Um, in fact, on the way to work, there was this fire in this, in this farmer's area, went in there and they had this propane tank down there and a bunch of other tanks. And I'm on the phone with, you know, you're always on the phone because you're remote when you're doing that stuff. And uh, fire department worried about leaking gas and all this. And I'm standing there and suddenly, you know, the flames are coming and I look down and my, my feet are in some kind of liquid. Oh. And I'm like, oh my God. And so I'm, I tell my editor, I'm like, I got to go. Bye. <laughs> Hang up. And turns out I got lucky. It wasn't flammable. 
But I mean, you don't know. You look down, you know, and the flames are coming. Yeah, but then hazardous materials too. Yeah, yeah. You know, as you're doing this stuff. So I mean, it's 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 a fun job. It keeps you on your toes, but sometimes you can stay up all night, you know, stressing out on it too. Yeah. Yep. You know, that's why sometimes going to court's a good thing because you can just sit there and go, okay. Yeah, but I'd rather be excited than bored. Yeah, me too. Me too. And I remember a lot of the times driving out to places and you're on the phone, you know, he's like, well, what's it look like? Wow. There's a bit puff of black smoke <laughs> when you're going out, you know? Yeah. I, you know, I, I, I'm glad we got to talk. It's fun to talk to somebody else that does, the, 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 that does this. Would I go back to do it? Absolutely. If I yeah. wasn't retired, I'd be back out there covering well, this stuff. I don't know. I don't know what retirement looks like for me yet. I, uh, some people have talked to me about it. I'm not sure how much more I got left to me on the daily side. I've been doing this. I've been in the business 42 years now. Um, yeah. and of that 24, 27, 30, about 31 years in the field. So I'm, I'm hitting kind of a I'm 35, almost 35 in the field now. And so I'm, I'm kind of getting tired. I am yeah. getting tired. And the traffic, I'm just getting tired. I mean, I have a company truck and everything, but it's still just the the time it wears you down. On I mean, I'm spending four or five hours just on the on the road every morning, and then to get to the story and the file and back, and it's just you know. And I won't be done tonight. See, I started this morning at uh, around seven forty five, eight o'clock this morning, and I won't be done until ten thirty, eleven o'clock tonight. I remember those days. Yeah, absolutely. My friends and I get I get off work and. uh we didn't end up running the movies before they closed the midnight movie, you know, just trying to get a movie in. Yeah. But see, I had a saying towards the end. My saying was the difference between an old reporter and a young reporter. Young reporter, when there's an accident, boom, out they go. Old reporter knows that the police department is probably not going to have a statement for an hour or so anyway. Yeah. So unless you're taking photos, there's really no point. <laughs> well, for me, though, if I got to get some sort of audio on the scene, right. I got to get somebody right. to tell me what they saw or, or something. But right. uh and a lot of times here, you know, we're dealing with car chases and that sure. for our, our night show for a long time, they had me out there chasing these car chases, you know, and I would come up behind on these, on these car chases all the time and run up afterwards and, you know, try to get some audio somehow sure. and got everyone excited. And I finally told my boss, I said, I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. I, I can't, I don't, I don't need to be doing car chases. That's stupid. So. Well, you know, it's a different world now too. Like you said, I mean, I mean, from what it was 15 you know, 15, 16 years ago, I retired to take care of my mom and dad. I mean, from physically being in the field in 2011. And so much has changed because as the, the two years before that is when things started to go to Facebook, things had to go to Twitter, mm -hmm. things had to mm -hmm. go to this, everything went online, which was fine. I had no problem with it. You know, we'd take our little videos and do all that stuff, but there's so much difference now. So you have to be out there when something happens, you know, it's not, it's not okay. The PR guy is going to come out in an hour. So I'll just, I'll just sit tight, get my coffee and go out. You can't do that anymore. You have mm. to take it out. It's just like being you know, on the on the radio, like you are. You you have to be out there and, and get something. I um, yeah. You know, a, a lot of times when COVID hit, I realized that I could I could cover a lot of stories and not leave this little room mm -hmm. uh, because everything yes. went virtual. Press conference, yep. all the COVID updates were virtual. Um, there are the county's COVID update is still virtual, but I think that's more about them having seizing power and control over you know over the media because uh they can cut off the feed anytime they want they don't like hard questions so they'll stop right. it and they'll do whatever they want but you know the mayor's office here has been really good about they were the first big agency to start doing in person again 
and then the police departments, fire departments, they're all doing in-person and on the scene stuff. So it's back to business as usual for about, but about a year and a half, almost two years. Um, you know, I was sequestered to this little room here. Um, mm-hmm. the only time I went out in the field is when we had the riots of 2020 and I had to get out there because the, the town was burning down. And yeah. so I had, I had, we had to be out there. We don't have helicopters like the TV stations do to tell the story. So we had to be there. So, um, but beyond that, I gotta be honest with you. I'd be lying if I said, I didn't really kind of enjoy sitting on my butt here most of the day and, and being safe for one, not dealing with traffic for two and being able to order food. I think I'm okay. <laughs> oh, you know what? As you get older, you'll get like that because as I've been home and a lot of my stories, you know, I, I do freelancing and a lot of my stories, I can, I can do them from the phone. Yeah. And it's nice. I don't have to be out, you know, chasing somebody down some football field or anything like that, trying to, trying to nab that story. Right. But you know, it's, it's all part of the job. And like I said, I, you know, I, I, now that I've got, I've earned my stripes, as they say, I, um, I can be a lot more selective on the stories I cover and how much time I put in now, because I am doing so many other special projects. I, Mm -hmm. I don't really have to worry about chasing every ambulance now like i used to so i don't i it's all good you know my bosses they take great care of me my company takes good care of me and uh they trust me they leave me alone and i i deliver so that's all it counts absolutely absolutely so um i was going to ask you you what do you like best about doing about doing this um unsolved crime radio show um i think what i like best is i think you alluded to it earlier and it's uh shining a, a a new light on an old case um giving it some new life if you will uh, that's been sitting dormant for a while. And, 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 and I, I'm very honest with families when I say, I don't know what this is going to do for you. I, I, I can't guarantee, but at least we're going to give it a big platform. Uh, you know, at any given moment, you know, we're, we're hitting a, about a million people, you, you know, in, in, you know, on a weekly audience average basis, I think is what our last number, I can't remember, but it's a large audience. Um, and plus it, then it stays online as a podcast. And then, so I said, there's always a reference to the story. So it's, it won't be lost. It's always memorialized now online. So you, people can still listen to it down the line. When we went on the air, um, we have a, iHeart has a very proprietary um, um, connection to the public called pound 250. So uh, it started out, you know, it's, it's used primarily for commercials instead of trying to remember someone's 800 number. Mm-hmm. All you have to do is hit pound 250 on your cell phone and say a keyword. Well, I went to management. I said, hey, can we utilize the pound 250 for the show for people with tips or story ideas? I'm like, sure. So they set it up for me. And now I just say, if you've got a tip on a story that we've highlighted or case, just hit pound 250, pound 250 and say keyword unsolved. It takes you to a voicemail with my voice greeting. And that thing has just ex- exploded. And so we go through and listen to all of them. And you can always tell when people are listening to the show right. because a lot of people, just as many people listen to it as a podcast the day after, two days after, as they do the, mm-hmm. the night that it airs live. And um, you can almost kind of set your clock by it. And we get a big influx of these pound 250 voicemails. And we sit there and we listen to my team and I sit there and listen to them. And then we turn them over to the authorities. I call them, I'll call the people back and say, hey, we got your voicemail. Um, I just want to verify a couple things. I'll talk to him and say, do you mind if I turn this over to LAPD? Do you mind if I turn this over to LA County Sheriff? And they're like, no. So then I call the detective and I say, hey, I'm sending you some audio or sending you the information, whatever. Um, We've had email tips now. So people are actively engaged in the show. 
And I can honestly say, I think out of all the, the feedback we've gotten, tips and whatnot, maybe one crank call, maybe one odd email here and there. But by and large, these people are really engaged and they're taking it seriously. That's awesome. Yeah. That is really awesome. So hopefully, yeah, I mean, you can go to sleep at night, you know, knowing that you're doing something great for the community. Yeah. I mean, and I guess the original content or the original thought for this was just to put a show on for Saturday nights. Right. Highlight some, some crime cases in Los Angeles area and, you know, just kind of like, let's put it on and see what happens. Well, what we didn't realize how, how quickly, and even the detectives are thanking us and texting us and saying, listen, you know, you don't have any idea what you're doing here. You're, you're really helping people and, and you're helping us. Uh, because you're getting it out there and because then we also highlight the cases on our website with the pictures the alert bulletin the description the narratives so there's also a printed or digital component to it as well as an audio component and so it does once it's on there as you know it sticks there and it stays there so even if someone misses it this saturday live they can always go back and listen to it at their convenience so um we realized very quickly that the impact we were having well, you know, that's one of the best things about being a journalist. I mean, if you can somehow have a story or, or a segment on a podcast that can help somebody, you've accomplished something. Mm-hmm. And it's a good feeling. Well, you know, the purpose of journalism in our eyes here, the purpose of journalism is to hold the powerful accountable, to expose mm-hmm. wrongdoing, and to give a voice to the voiceless. I mean, that's kind of our mantra. And um, there's no more voiceless segment of our population than the dead population right you know and in this particular case you know we give a voice to the people who can't speak for themselves and that's and also the families because a lot of times families don't have a platform and um, you know they have social media but that's a very very limited and very skewed audience unless they get something that takes their story viral and you know and then it helps them that way but by and large you know and look at podcasts now podcasts are becoming the subjects of tv shows and movies so podcasts have become a very powerful medium, uh, more so than radio. You know, yeah. we have a wide reach when it comes to terrestrial, but you know, then with being with iHeart, we have the benefit of that platform being a genuinely a, a worldwide platform. So um, I'd like to think that uh, I, I, you know, I would just love it one day if, if a tip that comes through our show was able to help somebody solve a crime. There's one I'm really confident of that we got on our, our case of the teardrop rapist episode four of our first season. And this was a guy who had sexually assaulted at least 39 women over, I think it was over 12 years, I think. And uh, out of the blue, this woman calls and says, I think that was my ex-boyfriend of X amount of years ago. And she describes him to the letter and his violent tendencies and what have you. And so I take all that information. I call her back and then interview her a little more just on, not on tape or anything, just for my own notes. Then I called the detective in charge of the case. I said, Hey, this woman called and reached out to me and told me all this stuff. She goes, that's really interesting. And so I said, can I put you two together? And she goes, yeah, I've not heard back from the detective yet. So I don't know what the status is on it, but I was very, very encouraged by that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to thank you for coming on. It's always fun to talk to someone like you. Sure. Thank you. Similar business like I was, you know, it's, it's really fun in a lot of ways. I miss it, but then, like I said, in a lot of ways, you know, when I think about if it's 105 outside and there's an accident on the freeway, I think, well, thank God I don't have to be out standing out there and dying of heat stroke. (laughs) Somebody else doing it. 
But uh, I want to thank you so much for coming on. This was so fascinating. It's my pleasure. My pleasure. I appreciate the invite. And maybe at some point we could have you on again because I just I just was absolutely fascinated by this. Sure. Yeah, and just reach out and we'll see how it goes. How do people find you? Uh well on social media, um, on Instagram, I'm at Steve Gregory 640. Mm-hmm. Um let's see, I think that's the same for my Facebook at Steve Gregory 640. And Twitter is at Stephen Gregory. Okay. And the only reason is is because when Twitter first came out. Now, here's a really funny story I'll leave you with. Go for it. I didn't know Twitter and I didn't know anything about Twitter. I learned about it at the OJ Simpson armed robbery trial because the public information officer for the Clark, uh, Clark County Courts, uh, one day we were sitting, here's a crazy one. So the media room was a, was a DUI classroom. They took the DUI classroom and turned it into the media room. They ran all the feeds in and put the plant and put the TV screens up so we could watch the trial because the trial was actually on the 16th floor and the media room was like on the 10th floor. Okay. So, and then if we wanted to, we could go up and sit in, in the courtroom. Mm-hmm. But, um, so we're sitting in there and all of a sudden the PIO walks in, the public information officer writes up on the dry erase board, Twitter. And he says, this is how I'm going to communicate with all of you for now on. I'm like, and I'll never forget the Associated Press reporter, Linda Deutsch, longtime court reporter based in Los Angeles. She's the sweetest lady, very talented. She covered Sirhan Sirhan. Charles Manson. She was sitting right there behind Manson during the trial. Um, and uh, she said, what the hell's a Twitter? And, <laughs> and we're all laughing. We're like, what is a Twitter? So here's the PIO walking us through the process of Twitter. So we're all downloading Twitter on our phones. And he sends us all a tweet. He says, press conference with attorneys, 9 a.m. tomorrow morning. And we all got it at once. And we thought that was the coolest thing because this was in 09. We got the, we thought that was the coolest thing ever. I call my boss. Oh, there's this new thing called Twitter. We got to do it. So at the time I had at Stephen Gregory and if had I branded myself, Steve Gregory, 640, I would have been verified by now because there's a ton of Steve Gregory's. There's a football player named Steve Gregory. There's a saxophonist named Steve Gregory. There's a cricket player in London named Steve Gregory. I mean, there's all these Steve Gregory's now, so I'll never be verified because I'm Stephen Gregory and there's a ton of Stephen Gregory's anyway. It's funny because uh, that's my that's why I have a Twitter handle, Stephen Gregory, that doesn't match the rest of my social media. Everything else is Steve Gregory 640, Twitter Stephen Gregory. So there you go. Gotcha. Thank you so much, Steve. And I uh, hope Me you too. get off earlier tonight. Get some, you know, c- kind of try to relax, you know, but uh, sure. I know how it is. I Thanks, Charlotte. Is. Have a great Thank night. Thank you so Keep much. I appreciate it. You have a good evening. You too. Bye. All right. Bye bye. Okay, so that was great. I got to go down memory lane a little bit because I bet you guys that know me, like Jerry, you know, uh, people on my team don't realize I've been shot at a few times. But anyway, uh, nature of the beast. Tomorrow, uh, we have a great guest coming on. We're going to go conspiracy tomorrow. Uh, There's supposed to be a secret space program out there that nobody knows about. Well, what else is new? There's probably a lot of them, you know. But uh, Carrie Lynn Cassidy is supposed to be with us. So she's going to join us to talk about the secret space program. All right. Um, if you like the show, check us out at CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com or go ahead and check out the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team at CaliforniaHaunts.org. I'm just starting to change that website over to another site. So that's going to be interesting because it's a huge, it's a huge website. But if you like the show and you're on Twitter, please, please subscribe. Uh, there's a little ghost there with a magnifying glass and a Sherlock Holmes hat. Click on that and that will subscribe you to our over 
or more than 200 videos on our Twitter feed. All right. And if you did like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. Equal opportunity, right? Okay. Anyway, as you can see by the ticker at the bottom of the page, well, we're not that far yet. Actually, our ghost tours that we're supposed to have on March 26th are almost sold out. We have three spots left. So uh, they go fast. So if you want to go on a ghost hunt with me, it might be a haunted hotel or a haunted cemetery. We're trying to nail that down. Um, the original hotel that we had booked with bumped us for a wedding. So, <laughs> you know, so that's the breaks, right? They're, they're going to go where they're going to make the most money. So, yeah, there's three spots left on that. And you get to try out some of our equipment. You know, we've got some of the stuff that the guys on TV have and all that. And you can take a look at it and get, and get hands-on experience with it. If you happen to get some evidence when you're on scene, we will give you credit for it on our website. Okay? And you might even get a picture with the team. Or you might be asked to join the team. So you never know what's going to happen. Okay. The ticker at the bottom of the page. We are a nonprofit organization, California Haunts. Not officially, but we are a nonprofit, trust me. And so everything you see here, the mics and uh, even my hat, right? Headphones and all that good stuff. And our paranormal equipment that we use out in the field all comes out of my pocket. So if something breaks, I got to whip up. My producer and I have, have to whip out the cash to pay for it. So we could always use a little help. And, I, you know, I want to keep people coming to these shows. I love doing them. Like, you know, as you know now, for sure, I am a journalist. And this is my chance to be a journalist in my retirement years doing this for this show. That's why we do a, a combination of shows, not only paranormal, but we do serious shows as well. So if you can kind of find it in your heart to help me out, that would be great. You can donate at paypal.me at California Haunts. Or if you're uncomfortable with PayPal, you can visit Venmo and then just simply type in California Haunts. Just like that. But I want to thank you guys for coming tonight. And I really appreciate it. And I have new headphones on the way because these headphones, I, well, actually what I did was trying to figure out what's going on with my headphones and it's either the cord on these headphones which i ordered a new cord for them or it's the headphones themselves so i have both coming <laughs> as replacements in the next week or so but again i want to thank everybody for being here and i will see you tomorrow same time 6 30 p.m pacific and have a good evening